Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello, happy hump day, and welcome back to another episode of the Birthland Podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode. Uh, it's a heavier topic. Today we're talking about the neonatal intensive care unit, or the NICU, a place that a lot of parents probably hope to never be, and also probably never even envision what it might look like if you do find yourself there. You know I'm a big proponent of preparing for things even if they aren't your plan. That way, if things take a turn that was unexpected, you're not left unprepared and kind of spiraling. You are left in, yes, a less than ideal position, but you're at least prepared and you know your options and you know your rights and you've kind of thought through your preferences. And so now it's just a matter of gathering all those things, collecting yourself and kind of sorting what are the options that you know to be available, which ones are actually available to you and applicable to your situation. And then how do you feel about those things? What are the pros? What are the cons? How do you want to move forward with these decisions in the NICU? Okay, I just realized that the echo knob on my microphone had been switched on, so that's been fixed. Oh, sorry about that, you guys. All right, in today's episode, I am joined by Casey Lewis, who is a NICU speech pathologist, certified neonatal therapist, and certified lactation counselor. And she's a NICU mom. Casey is the owner of TechScope LLC, which provides mobile swallowing diagnostic services to the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area, and she is an advocate for fragile infants that require hospitalization in the neonatal intensive care unit, or the NICU. Casey realizes that family-centered care is vital for best developmental outcomes as well as family well-being. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin and her graduate degree from University of North Texas. She is certified in neonatal touch and massage and has been designated as the neonatal developmental care specialist through the National Association of Neonatal Nurses. 
Casey became a NICU mom herself after experiencing placental abruption, which led to an emergency C-section and her baby requiring a 23-day NICU stay. In today's episode, Casey's going to be sharing with us just how this experience has forever changed her as a woman, as a mother, and as a clinician. So without further ado, Casey, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to I'm- have you. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. It's an honor and I'm excited to share my story. I think for the first time, um, I'm 11 weeks postpartum now, I think as of today. (laughs) Um, So it's been a journey to get here and I I hope that my story can help other people. Well, maybe let's start right there. Can you share your story? How did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so... I am a NICU speech pathologist and a NICU certified neonatal therapist. I got my master's in 2014. I pivoted my way into the NICU and my profession. It's really challenging to get into this specialty. I built a specialty and um, thankfully I landed pregnant in 2022. It's funny. I'm still navigating that postpartum brain fog. Um, And I had a high-risk pregnancy the whole time. And so I was seeing OB and high-risk, I think as early as 10 or 11 weeks, just secondary to, um, I have an autoimmune disease. So I was just kind of already flagged as being high-risk. And, you know, people say it's a NICU curse. (laughs) I know so much about the NICU and I thought I might have a NICU baby, but that doesn't mean that you're always going to be prepared for it. Um, so I delivered my baby at 34 weeks and six days. I experienced a placental abruption, um, which is not something I ever planned for. I think I, I just got the chills saying that. I just, I think it's so crazy that I, um, experienced that. Um, so I had an emergency C-section and my baby and I, well, my baby was in the NICU for 23 days and, um, my husband and I had actually just uh, closed on a home at the end of April and we hadn't even got to move in our home. We lived in our home for a week and um, I delivered my baby. So we were actually 65 miles away from the hospital that um, I drove myself to on that day. I literally drove myself to the hospital because I had a spidey sense that something was wrong. Um, and it literally saved my baby's life and my life. Um, so within that stay, my husband and I navigated 65 miles, um, one way, uh, to see our baby every day. And I was there as soon as I could be. And I left as late as I could and just to get sleep just, and then I'd be pumping every three hours and, um, putting the milk in the freezer. So, and then I was just headed back up there. So, um, yeah, oh, I think this, this is the first time I've had it and you now I think it will be a prolonged conversation about what happened to me. So I think this is going to be very raw for me, but also I hope healing because, um, this is a very personal thing, but I love this space so much. I love the NICU and it's just been fascinating to kind of like step back and experience the space as a mom, um, And I was fortunate enough to deliver in the hospital that I had built my career in. So I think there's pros and cons to that because you're surrounded by people who then know your medical information. But the pro is that 
I know that people really loved me and my baby. And so I could leave and know that the, my baby was in good hands, but th that didn't make it, you know, a lot. It made it a little bit easier, but it still was super challenging. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say here. <laughs> wow. That is, um, that's so tough. I'm so sorry. I just want to hold space for the unexpectedness, right? That trauma that comes from, oh, I never saw this coming my way. Okay. Can you share with us? And I want you to share as much as you're comfortable with and, and omit the pieces that you're not, of course, but those spidey senses, tell us about what tipped you off that day to, uh oh, something ain't right here. We need to go in. I don't know. I just had like this wave come over my body and I've always been very intuitive and I think um, throughout my life, it's been um, conveyed as having anxiety, to be honest with you. And um, now I I feel sad that I, you know, thought maybe those things about me. And I think that um, I can maybe be a slightly anxious person. But um, in, in this sense, it really saved my life and my baby's life. And uh, I actually had gone to the doctor that day and I just had come home because I took the day off. Um, I had come home <clears throat> and just was like, I'm going to take the rest of the day off and hang out. And I just got in the bed for like five minutes just to like sit down. And I just was like, something's weird. I just feel really weird. <laughs> and I actually um, went to the bathroom and I had like such trace spotting and it was like nothing. I, I think that I just wanted to look at the toilet paper, to be honest with you. So I was like, why am I feeling so weird? I looked at the toilet paper. It was like almost literally nothing. I have a photo of it. And I'd like share it with my my woman friends or even some of my friends' husbands. I'm like, look at this. It's like nothing because people are like, how did you know? I was like, I don't know. But basically, um, I believe, you know, my water broke to some extent, but, um, I think my bleeding was internal. So it wasn't like I wasn't bleeding out. So when you think about a placental abruption or what you're taught in school, it's like excessive bleeding, terrible pain, you know, this the horrible things. I didn't have any of that besides a wave of like some like urgency. And so I actually called my doctor and I was like, I think something's wrong with me. And, um, my doctor didn't get back to me for an hour and a half. They were busy. And so I finally, I just, just drove myself 65 miles to the hospital and, uh, five miles away or so I was like, got this wave of like a hot flash or I was like, something's going wrong. And I was like, my heart was pounding and I just got out, I got to the hospital in time and I walked up to labor and delivery. They swabbed me and they're like, you're going to have an emergency C-section. And, um, they, uh, that was so crazy. I mean, within like 10 minutes, I was getting an epidural that, <laughs> and, uh, when they removed my baby from me, uh, I heard her cry, which was amazing. And, uh, they removed 12 CC of blood off my blood off her lungs. Uh, so, and she, her APGARs were eight and eight which I know a lot about what can happen with a placental abruption. Um, it's can be significant neurotrauma. And so I was very fortunate with that. And um, actually when I was wheeled back to C-section and thankfully my husband got there in time, I don't even know how that happened. That was just a, a godsend. Uh, 
I saw my coworkers, they were prepped for me to, to be there. Cause I texted one of them, like something's wrong with me. You know, I'm going to labor and delivery. I feel like something's off. They were waiting for me, like smiling at me, you know, like we're here for you. Like, let's do this, you know? And I just started crying, you know, I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on? Like, this is so fast. I cannot even process what's happening to me. And, um, actually during my epidural, my, I, my OB coached me through it. She held me like a baby. I will never forget that. It was just everyone, you know, running around me and talking rapidly. There was like 15 people in the room and she held me and she held me down during my epidural and my, um, anesthesiologist held my hand. <laughs> like the people around me really took great care of me. And that's got me through the moment. Cause actually during the epidural, my husband wasn't in the room. Um, but since I'm so passionate about skin to skin, I'm actually a lactation counselor as well. And I, the people I work with know like how crazy passionate I am about skin to skin, because that's something that's oftentimes missed in this experience and people don't know about it or even know how to advocate for it. Or sometimes it can be seen as like problematic in the NICU for some reason. It's just like an extra thing for the staff members to do. And so and I mean that respectfully to my coworkers, uh, but it's something that's absolutely necessary. And so um, I told my husband, they're going to take her to the, to the NICU and you go with them and I'll go wherever I'm going. <laughs> and so he went to the NICU with her. And um, after I, you know, my husband, my husband left, I was looking at my OB while she was stitching me up. I was like, I've got to do skin to skin. How can I, I've got to get this taken care of. And she's looking at me like just a second. Okay. Um, and so I did get to do skin to skin a few hours later. And I mean, I understand why I couldn't do it immediately. Like my body was in a critical state. It wasn't just like a fancy, you know, a, um, a nice C-section where, you know, when here, we're going to cut you open. Here's your baby. Let's hold. And, um, my health was on the line as well. So, um, later that night I did get to do skin to skin and I have pictures of myself and, you know, my skin so pale and white. I don't think I even, I was just such an adrenaline rush, like not even thinking about my body. Right. I'm like, Oh, there's my baby. And most people have fear about holding their baby in that state. Cause my baby um, was four pounds, 14 ounces. So, and she was on CPAP, which is, I mean, in the NICU world, like she wasn't intubated, which is amazing as well. Right. Um, but if you're an, a new mom who knows nothing about the space, it's can be quite frightening. Like there's all these things in my baby. My baby has an IV. My baby has a tube in her mouth. Like what's going on? Um, and so I'm thankful for my career that prepped me for knowing what to expect. And I mean, certainly I wasn't afraid of it at all, you know, cause it's normal to me. And, um, I do remember when I, when I got down to the NICU, I looked at my, my, um, baby's nurse, who's actually my friend. And I was like, I want to do skin to skin. And her eyes got big and she was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, yep, we're going to do it. Uh, and she moved me to skin to skin and we laugh about it now, but, um, that was so critical in, in terms of for my mental health, like looking back on it and for my baby's health and also for my milk supply, because right after I went to do skin to skin, I was like, where's my pump? <laughs> and I told, you know, my OB, I need skin to skin. I need my pump ready for me. Like I'm going into battle. That's how it felt. Um, probably because the experience 
felt, you know, initially the surgery felt like a battle. Um, but actually after that, um, C-section, you know, I'm, I can't move my legs and I was cut open. And so my husband helped me hand express and, um, uh, um, so he actually was the one helping me hand express, which I think a lot of people would think like, what is, that's very strange. Why is your husband doing that? You know, but I was like, we got to do it. And my husband's actually a combat veteran. So maybe some of the things came into play for him too, but you know, I wasn't actually, I was medicated, but I couldn't move much. So I think for, I don't even know how long, really, it's all a whirlwind of time. Um, but he helped me hand express. And then that night, um, my, um, lactation consultant friend came in, she was on night shift. I was like, you work night shift. I didn't know that. And she came in with my pump and sized me for a flange. And, uh, I remember when my milk started to come out and I was like, this is so crazy. But those times set me up for my milk supply. And actually I'm an oversupplier now. (laughs) It, um, Um, it means so much to have that partner support in, in, in this whole journey and all of it, but like, especially critical in the NICU. Also, thank you to your husband for his service. Um, can you, can you share with us what it was like being that double character of medical professional and also patient? Because you said it, it prepared mm-hmm. you in a sense, Um, but I imagine that in your C-section hearing the things that you knew what they meant Mm -hmm. be uh, hollered out in the room, it had to have felt different than for a patient that doesn't have a medical background and and doesn't really know what those acronyms mean or the numbers or the, the letters and the numbers put together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I knew, I mean, I knew how bad it could be, but I just had a wave of peace, you know, come over me during, during the surgery for some reason that I don't know. And I'm thankful for, um, my brother actually has autism and he's nonverbal and he had a traumatic birth. And so my mom always told me he, he was blue after his C-section. And so, you know, I'm over here, that's going through my head, you know, I'm like, okay, uh, how, how can we control that? And there's certainly nothing I could have done. But um, I think it's important to know, like, if you're in that experience, um, if you hear like numbers shouted out, I think I like to be prepped for what the APGAR mean. It, it doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't, I mean, it holds weight in, in the NICU space, but it can be kind of subjective because it's kind of like, who's picking the number here. Um, but in terms of like that, but my friend actually was the first one to hold my baby, which it feels so weird. You know, I'm so thankful. I know who it was and I'm, I, I love her and I'm glad it was her. And um, I always remember her like she was the first one to hold my baby. But it's I think that still can feel traumatic to me. Like, I mean, I feel like I want to cry saying that like my I wasn't the first one to hold my baby. Like that's yeah. uh, that's weird, you know. Um, and I didn't get to hold my baby for like four hours later, you know, that's a weird thing because all these other people were performing life-saving procedures on her. I mean, like they had a suction 12 CC of my blood out of her lungs, um, and take her to the NICU. So, um, if you're, if no one can prepare for an emergency C-section, but I think it's, if you have a high-risk pregnancy, it's important to learn kind of the space 
I don't know if I think prepare maybe, but you fully prepare. I don't think it's possible. Um, and always, I think it's a good idea to tour the Nikki you're going to deliver at. I think that's something a lot of people don't do. And maybe it's like, I'm not going to, my baby's not going to the Nikki. I don't need that, you know? And actually, oh, I, I would do it. Um, even if, if you're choosing to deliver at a hospital, right. Um, I would do it even if you're not high risk because, those full-term babies still go to the NICU and if he, in a lot of times late preterms go to the NICU, um, obviously more than, um, full-term babies, but that's something I would recommend is tour the NICU space. And so if, if in the event that you need that, it's not as traumatizing, I think. Um, but I think where it started to get really challenging for me was, um, actually whenever my hospital stay was up because then I, wasn't with my baby anymore. Cause it was nice to, I got another day, um, of courtesy to stay in the hospital. Cause I had a NICU baby. Um, but it was just so lovely to just like my baby's in the NICU. I go upstairs. Um, I can bathe, <laughs> I can eat and then go back down to see my baby. And then, you know, I already said I was 65 miles away. Um, so that pose that first night was horrible. I was like, what just happened. I can't believe I just left my baby there, like in a different, like far away from me. It's not like we're 10 miles away. Um, but I do remember after I delivered, uh, I just told the team, I was like, do not treat me like I work here. Do not. Cause I, that, I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. I'm medicated. I'm traumatized. Uh, treat me just like a person who knows nothing, please. And um, they did most for most of the the time. Um, and I was lucky enough to have the physician that I have the best rapport with to care for my baby. Um, but I think it's important to always remember in the hospital setting, you're the customer. This is not like, you know, don't forget that whenever, if you're ever sick or you ever need to go to the hospital in this country, you are the customer and you ask for what you want. Um, and you tell them what you want because again, it is a business and, Mm -hmm. um, you should be getting what you want regardless. But when you can think in that mindset, if you deliver in a hospital, I think it makes things easier in some way to process because it's like, well, I'm paying you for this. I mean, cause I got my NICU bill, right? Ooh, what a crazy bill. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so glad I asked for everything I wanted, but I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I know it absolutely does. And it's, it's a good reminder that you're in control of the things that happen, even, even when the situation feels very out of control, but I'd like to dive into that advocacy a little bit. Did you have to advocate for that extra day stay, um, as a NICU medical professional, do you, see that's a thing that parents need to do? Do they need to be prepared to advocate to stay? Is this an option that's always going to be available? Are there things that the hospital may just say, we just don't have that as an option? I think it depends on the hospital. So my hospital offers it to all NICU parents if there's a room, right? Got if there's it. not someone delivering. And so that's why it's courtesy. If there's full and someone's needs a room, then you won't get one. Um, but I, I mean, in my hospital note, my OB wrote for my insurance, like she lives 65 miles away. We're going to give her a room. Um, and I actually got three meals a day. I think I actually got two days of courtesy. It's all so blurry in my mind, but my husband and I get meals for three days. And a lot of NICUs actually offer meals the whole time during this day, which I think they should be doing. Um, mine didn't, um, 
But yes, you certainly should. I was advocating the whole time to my nurses, to my OB. And I, I, I don't know. There's a test called the Colby A. It's a personality test. And no, I don't have any affiliation with them, but I'm what they call a fact finder. And so I want to know all the facts. And so even with like my pain management, what the nurse would come in, what are the goals? Well, my goals are to stick to my pain management schedule and to get down to the NICU. And so right after my, the next day I was getting up and walking and, um, to the NICU and back. So that helped my healing process. Um, yeah, I hope I see again, I told, I told you from the beginning, this is all so raw for me and it's almost like a counseling session, but I hope that I'm able to help somebody. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that there are thousands of listeners out there who will hear this before they have their baby and, and at least know that they're not alone in it, but also people mm-hmm. who have already experienced this, who are feeling alone and now feel, well, at least Casey is with me. You know, at least somebody is yeah. out there. Um, and at the end, we'll give you guys more uh, resources for finding groups for, you know, NICU parents. Um, along the same lines of that advocacy, if someone weren't as, um, let's say, confident as you were to just look at your friend and say, all right, we're doing skin to skin. How might they advocate in the NICU for something like skin to skin, um, it, it, especially if they're being told, you know, we can't do that? Or are there things that would prevent you from being able to do skin to skin? Yeah, so that's a tricky question. So I would say generally, sometimes the staff don't even think about offering it, first of all, because they're so thought in, in their in their procedure and their goals, right? Like I need to offer this medication. I need to change the IV. I need to feed the baby. I need to change the diaper. They're obviously thinking about being kind and welcoming to you, but skin to skin is another task for them. And so in the healthcare space, it's task-based care generally. And that's what I'm a therapist. So I'm more holistic and that's not to say any um, negative things about my colleagues. We all have different things to offer that I simply can't, off- not, can't offer that they can. Um, but knowing that maybe they didn't even think about offering it to you. And a lot of times um, NICUs don't have adequate training on how to transfer baby skin to skin. So it's uncomfortable for staff. Um, especially when they're critical. Um, so um, like babies who are intubated should be able to be held skin to skin. And generally it's a three person transfer and RTs there, respiratory therapy. Um, in that case, um, a nurse and oftentimes a therapist like myself and then the parent and they're guiding the baby to mom. And I'm so passionate about doing a standing transfer for skin to skin, something also to look into is you don't want to just have your baby pick your baby up and then bring the baby to you seated in a chair. That is actually quite traumatic for the baby. I can just envision baby's hands flailing around and screaming um, because that's not um, comfortable for the baby if you think baby was just swimming around in fluid. So if you're doing the standing transfer, mom or dad or mom and mom, whatever that family system looks like, um, would 
bring the ch- her, I'll say her for mom, her chest down to baby and baby would be guided to mom's chest. And then mom and baby would be guided to the chair. And it also decreases the risk of um, intubation, um, extubation, excuse me. And so a lot of times hospitals don't want to offer skin to skin to babies to her, who are intubated because of the risk of extubation, which that's a significant risk for the baby's health. Right. But also in terms of their quality reports, it doesn't look good for the hospital. Yeah. And so extubation mm-hmm. is is where the um the intubation tubing yes. comes it, out on accident. Yes. Well, is removed on purpose, yes. but in this case it would be accidental. Yes. Yes. And so it's a, it's a safety hazard, but if t- staff are trained appropriately and also the parent is coached prior to on it things move quite smoothly. And it also can help baby get extubated planned, planned extubation and moving to a lower respiratory support faster. Um, so that's something if you, even if you don't have a baby in the NICU and you're doing skin to skin, um, doing that at home, the standing transfer is actually very, um, important and holistic care rather than just bringing your baby, someone bringing your baby to you, if you are unable to, for some reason, transfer the baby, because it sets baby up to be quite frustrated. And I don't know, angry is a word, but um, overstimulated prior to initiating skin to skin, in which it should be at least one hour each session. And then if you are in the NICU, and you're trying to build your milk supply, you would pump um, after holding skin to skin. And um, again, it's one hour because that's a sleep cycle for the baby's brain. And that's where baby's brain heals is during sleep. And baby's going to sleep best during skin to skin, not in an isolate, which is, or an incubator, if you want to call it that, that is not where baby's going to sleep best. Um, But in terms of advocacy groups, I know you mentioned that for parents. My hospital didn't have a great parent support group. Um, And so if you're like at a larger children's hospital, you're probably going to be, um, connected better. Uh, but I think it's also secondary to the fact a lot of parents don't want to relive this time. And so they, they're just trying to focus on their baby. How can they help someone else, you know? And obviously there are a lot of parents and families out there that want to offer their time. Uh, but I think that's something that I've thought about like maybe that's why there's not a lot and, you know, life's expensive right now too. Maybe it's also resources. I will say that um, I looked into an organization called Carter's cause. Even I was sitting at the NICU while my baby was asleep and they sent me a care package, which was quite lovely. Um, And um, that's something to look into, but in terms of like the hospital offering me parent-based support, I didn't have that probably because I was at a community hospital. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I think um I think NICU support, I mean, I think parental support is shit in this country to begin with. Um, but then that specialized NICU support is really, really hard. Um, it reminds me of bereavement support or loss support, those even deeper niches in the birth world. It, it's just so underserved. Um, it's very hard to connect. And then I think you're right. I think there's a piece of just Onward and upward. I don't want to look back. I don't want to relive this. We are through it, or at least through what mm-hmm. we are through and what's in front of us. We'll take it on kind of day by day, right?
So Casey, did you ever get a reason or a diagnosis as to what caused your placental abruption? No. So I had actually gone to see my high risk earlier, um, the morning that I delivered and my fluids looked normal and actually they looked better than my visit prior, which was, I think it was, um, three days prior. And I actually had been experienced what, what I had thought was urinary incontinence at night when I would get out of bed to go to the bathroom and, um, I would have fluid on my underwear. And I thought like, the first time it happened, I was like, what is this? You know, and did my fluid, did I rupture my membranes or my, did I, my water break? And, um, I would tell my physician and they're like, I'm pretty sure it's just like urinary incontinence because your baby's pushing on you. And I think they would measure my fluids because I went to the doctor two to three times a week. So I was seeing high risk and OB. And that morning they measured my fluids. And so they looked normal. And so whenever I was experiencing, like I had gone to the bathroom and I had saw the trace spotting, which again was nothing. I was like, how am I like making this up? Right. Like this, this wave of fear or spidey sense coming over me. And I am making this up that I, my water broke or something's wrong. And if I would have, you know, leaned on the expertise of, um, the medical professional. I don't know if I would have gone to the hospital instead of trusting myself, but it's also important to know like that high level technology that was measuring my fluids. I don't even know what it's, the technology is called. Um, doesn't mean that that's accurate, which is crazy. Cause who knows how much that machine cost. Um, and maybe my fluids were good, right? I don't know. And so looking back, I'm like, maybe my fluids were good. And it just happened so quickly. I don't know what was what, right? Because, but I'm pretty sure whenever I was like five miles away from the hospital, when I felt that really weird experience, my heart was pounding. I think that's when I started to abrupt. And so I literally was just in the right space at the right time. And um, I, I don't even know what to say other than like, I was you know, being watched by someone to get me to the right, the right space at the right time. But if I didn't trust that spidey sense and had to try tra- travel by car 65 miles through Dallas, Fort Worth, which is massive traffic, um, and experience that ex- feeling five miles away from the hospital, like my baby could not be alive right now. And so always trust yourself, I think is important to, um, always trust yourself. And just because a healthcare, healthcare professional, is the expert in the space. They don't know your body like you do. Yeah. And that intuition you talked about earlier, just technology doesn't know everything. You have intuition for a reason. And if your intuition is disagreeing with the technology, it's okay to say that. It's okay to advocate for that. It's okay to say, I see your machines and I see your fancy machinery, but I'm telling you something is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one more thing I would have would have wished I would have done, but I didn't know or I didn't think to ask is when I first experienced what the urinary incontinence, I wish they would have checked me. They would have swabbed me to see if my membranes have ruptured or my water broke. That's something I wish looking back I would have done because then it would have been like, well, was my water breaking this whole time? But the technology was saying my fluids were great, you know? So if you feel like that you're doing that, just say, Hey, can we see if my, can we swab me? Maybe there's pros and cons to that, that I don't know. Um, Cause I'm certainly not an expert in that, but that's something I would have asked. And the doctor would have said yes or no. And we could have had that conversation then, but yeah. Yeah. 
I am a little surprised that they didn't swap you to see if your waters had broken, especially considering that was a couple of weeks before you actually delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, so your baby would have been in the right age zone, gestation zone for um, possibly steroids for their lungs. So it does. I actually asked for steroids. <laughs> yeah. And did I did ask them? for steroids. No. So that was my intuition coming over again, where I was thinking maybe I am my water, my did my water broke and they were like, you're fine. You're probably just peeing on yourself. Right. Um, but I did ask for steroids and I was told I didn't need them. Mm. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And but any of your babies diagnosis postpartum can, can any of them be attributed to the fact that they didn't get steroids or do you think some of them would have been less severe had your baby had steroids? Yes. I think so. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not the physician, but yeah, I mean, my baby, she had an apnea, you know, or she had respiratory issues and she had a really hard time weaning off of respiratory support. And that was part of our NICU stay because if you can't breathe well, you can't eat well. Okay. And no, you can't go home. And so, yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I was very, frustrated with myself. I think after I delivered, like, why didn't I just say I want steroids, but I had the conversation. And again, just because you're a specialist in the area doesn't mean that you know everything, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, my OB did take care of me in my emergency C-section and she did everything she could for me. Um, but she's, she's a human, right? No one's a God. And so, yeah, trust yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely trust yourself over technology every time, every, every time. Technology is a tool to help us confirm or decline what we think is happening. Um, It's not an end all be on. It certainly shouldn't be put above our intuition or our consent or our preferences for our care or our baby's care or what have you not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that we've gotten kind of in those emotional weeds, talk to us about what was it like seeing your baby hooked up to the IV and what can parents do if if they're not prepared for the visual piece of the NICU, because I think a lot of us don't think about our babies are going to have all sorts of things taped on them and, and they're going to have these lights around them, or possibly these are all things that might be in the NICU or in your NICU experience. How can parents cope with that when there's really no way to prepare for that? Mm-hmm. I think this is where like my career came into play because I mean, I'll be honest with you. I knew I was my baby's mom, mm. but it was almost like I was forming a care plan for my baby. Like I was your, my baby's therapist. And so that was an interesting process for me to navigate because um, I think that just helped me process what was happening to me. Like see my baby as my baby, but my baby was also my patient in a way, which is weird, you know, and I, I don't want that to sound like I was, I don't, I know I'm not a bad mom, but that's just how it helped me process. Like how I would see another baby and writing goals for them and how um, to care for her best. I don't know if I have great advice on that because I think it's, it's, 
there's again, no way to really prepare other way, other than to process it through your mind that this is helping my baby survive. And, um, my baby's still my baby. My baby just needs some, some help. And it's my baby's generally going to be okay. Um, I certainly think my baby's doing very well considering I was able to be there all day. It was almost like, I mean, I did all the cares for my baby at, you know, the nurse was there, but at some point they also knew that I could take care of it, which there's pros and cons to that, but I, you have to be present. And so you always view yourself as the parent and you're, you provide the cares, meaning the diaper chains and the temperature, um, as much as possible. And, um, the nurse or whoever is there will step in, but making sure you are immersing yourself into your baby's experience and not letting someone else care for your baby. If you can provide the same care. Now, certainly you're not going to be able to mitigate an IV or an NG tube, which is a tube through the nose or OG tube, a tube through the mouth, but do as much as you can for your baby, because it, you're going to, there's a disconnect there. Like that whole experience has been like your baby was with you in your body removed from you. And then there's, there's a barrier to, for the bonding. And it's really weird when, when I lived it, I always knew it and actually like taught about it at professional conferences and to students, but it is just, it is very strange um, to have someone else caring for your baby and you're leaving your baby and at some point at the end, I was tired. I remember I was just exhausted. Like I'm so ready to go home. Like I can do this. Right. But I, at the end of the day, I knew, I knew she needed um, the care, but I think my best advice is to immerse yourself into that your baby's experience and your baby's world, because your baby and you share the same world for so long. And that can, can, it can, and will continue. It's just the NICU is what your baby, if you're in that experience, um, needs to get home. And so I lived 23 days of that. (laughs) And for the medical professionals out there who are listening, how can they better support these parents? What did you want as a NICU mom that maybe you got, maybe your friends took care of you hundred percent. Um, but what are things that if we've got NICU professionals listening and they're like, I just wish I could support my patients deeper. What are those things that they could do? I think a suggestion is to watch your words. And this is something I kind of already knew, but when I lived it, it, it you're just at a heightened state of sensitivity and watch your language. Okay. Um, it, and I'm certainly not saying curse words or anything like that, but like how you're talking, how you're talking about the baby you're caring for. Um, like, I don't know, like even when a baby starts to feed, like the baby's getting too tired or, um, the baby's, I don't know if you work in the NICU, there's the words and I've had a, a list of them and I can't, I probably, cause they're too traumatic for me to like think about, but, um, you're dealing with a human being and a human family, and this is not a robot. And so I think a lot of times NICU staff can say things that are not lovely, um, even about the baby they're caring about, but they don't even think about it because they're just, that's their job. Like they're just going to work and uh, the babies can not feel like real 
people sometimes because it's like, it's just a weird thing, but always remember you're dealing with a human baby and a human family and the implications of your words matter. And so I, I just think that's really important. And also having good communication between staff member to staff member, because it can get frustrating when a parent is repeating themselves about their wishes um, or maybe whenever they want to come do skin to skin or play in the bath. And I, I think that's an improvement universally across healthcare is improving communication and making sure the next team member knows maybe these are the top three points for this family. And this, this family comes every day and um, not seeing a parent being present all the time as a negative thing. Because I've experienced that as a staff member, staff saying like they're here all the time. Oh my gosh, like they just won't go away. Like they need to go home. <laughs> and um, yeah, I I mean I stayed there as much as I could, and and I think you should feel like if that if that's you, that that's good. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and I was the only parent in my NICU there as much as I was, and maybe that's because I had the resources to be there. Again, life's expensive right now, um, but I don't know. I think parents don't even know that they're allowed to be there as much as they want to be. They should be. The NICU is supposed to be open 24-7. Now every NICU has different rules, but um, it's supposed to be a family-centered care model. And a lot of times NICUs don't even really know what that means or they embrace it. And they just advertise they offered family-centered care when they really don't. And so you should be able to be with your baby whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can we talk about those, I guess, that physical demand that comes along with the NICU that I think a lot of people are not prepared for? It's that back and forth that you talked about. It's the pumping. It's transporting your milk, getting up there. It's the mental load of advocacy. It is the long hours in the NICU um, what can parents do to make that easier? And maybe, maybe there's nothing. <laughs> I think one suggestion is, you know, I'm a person who likes to take care of my life and myself, and, um, I don't want to cause my, like what I'm going through to cause someone else, like more stress in their life. But in this space, if you have people that love you, tell them what you need. And don't just be like, I'm doing good or things are suck, you know, be like, I'm okay. But do you think you could grab me lunch today? Or do you think you could check my mail today? Um, because I think there's probably people seeking to help you, but they don't want to bother you. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to tell people what you need. And I can specifically think of two or three friends, actually, besides my immediate family in my life that just like totally served me and um, brought me meals and brought my baby her first clothes. Um, and what that was that without me even asking. So I think it's kind of beautiful when you have people in your life that know what you need without you even knowing what you need. And so that's something you can't really prepare for besides trying to establish really strong relationships. But I mean, something I remember is, I mean, it is, can be quite traumatizing waking up at two or three in the morning. You're the only one, cause I only have one baby now. Um, awake in the house and I'm pumping and it's just like, what is this? This is weird. You know, where's my baby? I'm like, it's almost like I'm making milk for, for who, you know, cause my baby's not here and everyone else is sleeping, but I had all this trauma happen to me, but 
um, I've got to still hustle and make the milk. Um, and so if you have an icky baby, kind of just know that that's part of the experience. I, and I, I don't mean that negative to my husband who was sleeping. <laughs> uh, he did, uh, he's done amazing for me, but that is a weird thing. Like I will never forget like being up and it's just dark around the house and I'm pumping and, and then I open my freezer and put my milk in, but there's no baby. And so, um, that's weird. And I think it's just something to know if it happens to you it, it will be weird. And let it feel like feel that space and know that's part of the experience and that's not how it's supposed to be, right? But I was so fortunate and I have been fortunate to be able to provide my baby with my milk. And that's something that people don't have to do, right? And it's such a mental ex- health experience as well. And so if it doesn't work for you, please know that that's fine. Fed is best and fed is fed. Uh, but if it's a, if it works for you, just know it's kind of part of the experience. Yeah. I hear those deep digs of loneliness that comes with the NICU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I have so many people in my life that love me, um, but it still is quite lonely because at the end of the day, you just want to be with your baby. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody can do everything for you to make you feel better. And it, it sometimes, sometimes just doesn't fill that void because your baby's the only one that can do that. Right. Right. And so, I mean, I always, I mean, I got to know my baby in the NICU, but I don't think I really got to know her until we got home. Yeah. And, um, and I think that just is what it is. Right. Cause you want the privacy of not people, people not looking at you or checking mm-hmm. on you. Like, just let me be alone for a second. <laughs> And like, let's always, like, I remember going down the day after I had my baby and my friends were coming over, like checking on me. And I was like, I'm just, we're just getting to know each other, you know? Cause that's how it feels. It's like, I don't know you, but I know you. And what do you look like? Like, wow. And <laughs> cause it's my first baby. And not only that, I had all the experience happen to me, but I, I got, I did as much as I could to bond with my baby, baby in the NICU, but I didn't really get to do that the way I wanted to until I got home, which I knew would be the case. <laughs> yeah. It really takes that uninterrupted time where the NICU doesn't mm-hmm. so much allow for that. No. And most, a lot of NICUs don't have um, single rooms. I was in pods and there's pros and cons to that from like a healthcare provider standpoint, because if you're dinging, like the alarms going off in your room, like your baby needs something, the staff member can hear it better in a pod usually than in a single room, but single room has like, I actually really wished we had that as a parent. And I thought I would, and the research says there's much, there's significant benefits to the um, private rooms or the single rooms for bonding purposes. And I certainly could attest to that in the sense that I really wanted that, not a curtain around me. And then I have a neighbor who has a curtain around their family if they're present and they can hear my husband and I's conversations or I'm trying to pump and the curtain gets nicked. I'm like, Oh, here I am pumping. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and I think you just get to a point. It's like, whatever, it's, it's just how the space is, but the, the privacy certainly is not a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. tough. I've, I never considered that. I never even thought about it. Um, I don't guess I realized that NICUs could have single rooms like that, private, private rooms like that. I have just always seen the pod, I think. Mm-hmm. A lot like the NICU, like I work in, I delivered in, there are single rooms, but generally those are for babies who maybe have some sort of infection and need to be isolated. Um, and, but 
like NICUs as they're becoming like maybe they're building them, they're becoming redesigned. A lot of NICUs are going to this um, single rooms because there's there's research out there and I can't quote it right now uh, based. Uh, but that says there's so many benefits to it. But from a staff member standpoint, sometimes staff don't prefer it for reasons kind of that I already described. But as a parent who was 100 percent present in the NICU, I wanted that for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I think you've shared so much and I am like <laughs> so thankful for you being so raw and honest. I know you said this was the first time you have recorded. I honestly could not be more honored for you to to share your story for the first time on our podcast. And um, also for being so open and transparent. I think there's a lot of big feelings that come with a NICU stay and it it really prevents people from sharing a lot of it, um, mm-hmm. which which just adds to that isolation. Not that that's anybody's fault or it's anybody's responsibility to share. It just is. It's it's just the name of the game, I think, um, in terms of Nikki stay. But if there were any tips or, or things that you, looking back, wish that you could tell your pre NICU self in order to better prepare you for what was coming your way, what would those things be? Um, it's a tricky question, but I think just, first of all, as a new mom, you're experiencing prior to delivering your baby, you're experiencing a range of emotions. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a child. Hold on. And, or also like, this is so exciting. You know, it goes all over the place. Your emotions, like, I've got to get this new house ready. I'm moving into I don't even have the nursery ready, you know, uh, but just remind, always remember that you are the mother and you know, you know, what's best for your baby without even sometimes even knowing it. And that's easier said than done. Right. But just hold space for yourself to remember that you are your baby's mom and you are your baby's you know, biggest advocate and you know, your baby better than anyone else in this, in this world, in this universe, um, no matter whatever education you've done or how, how much a physician knows, right. And they don't know your baby. And so I think that's just something I would have reminded myself and I knew it, but if I could, could have known this, you know, three months ago or, um, just to remember you, you are your baby's biggest advocate and you can advocate for your baby in a kind manner among healthcare professionals. So when I say advocacy, it doesn't mean like we're going to argue, right. Uh, But you can do so in a peaceful way, but I hope that was helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know that this episode is going to change a lot of lives. And and like I say, I think you're going to squash some of that loneliness, that isolation that comes with being a NICU parent. Um, if people were interested in connecting with you, you're on Instagram. Tell us how people can connect with you. Yeah. So my Instagram is at the Casey Lewis. Uh, and before I had my baby, I that's all I did was advocacy on my, my Instagram. Now, granted, I don't have a large platform. It's really, I was, I do, um, I I'm on Instagram or social media because I love the space and I know there's so many things that aren't talked about or even unknown. Uh, but I 
if you have a question or if you'd like to connect, you can send me a message there. And um, I'd love to help because I think I know this space now in a way that people who are maybe there's like head neonatologist and they're so well-respected from a scientific standpoint, but they don't have the human human experience of living in the space. So now I have both experiences and that's not something I wish on someone, but I know that it will just continue to help me um, support others as they experience something like this. I am completely blown away by your self-awareness and your selflessness in turning um, this really chaotic and unexpected and traumatic event into something that um, you're using to power yourself and Mm -hmm. to empower other people and to um, be an even better clinician than you were before you had your baby. Um, It was truly an honor to share this space with you today, Casey. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing your story and being here with us. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, listeners, that's all we've got for you this week. If you're listening on the podcast, head over to YouTube. And if you're on YouTube, head over to the podcast. Otherwise, connect with us on Instagram. I'm at Tranquility by Hehe or at the.birth.lounge. Until next week, bye, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.